Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Kinsella. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, here we are, another year over and a new one just beginning. And what a year it should be, Mark. We are looking at some incredibly interesting changes in healthcare in the coming year. It's expected that by the end of 2014, there will be millions of Americans newly insured and many of them newly entering the healthcare system. Margaret, I think it's also interesting to note that some 15 million low-income Americans will be covered by Medicaid expansion. That will be a significant number. And uh, perhaps will have a profound impact on things like use of the emergency room and bad outcomes to chronic illness, the consequence of lack of prevention. So a terribly important aspect to the health care law because it really aims at protecting the most vulnerable populations. And I do believe this will have an impact on the public health. The White House also announced another option for those Americans whose insurance plans have been canceled and they can't find coverage. They can opt for a catastrophic coverage plan that was reserved for Americans under 30 years of age. I want to remind people that you really are much better off finding a plan that covers all the essential benefits that the health care law calls for. That way you really get value for the dollar and much more comprehensive coverage, including prevention. All these changes in health policy are affecting the medical profession as well. And our guest today has a keen insight into that side of the equation. Dr. Harvey Feinberg has presided over thousands of public health studies in his role as the president of the Institute of Medicine. Dr. Feinberg was the longtime dean of the Harvard School of Public Health, and he'll share some unique insights into the progress that they have made at the Institute of Medicine in developing evidence-based recommendations for policies that will improve healthcare delivery, training, and public health. Laurie Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, stops by uncovering misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by Googling CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Harvey Feinberg of the Institute of Medicine in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. It was something of a year-end rush. In the waning weeks of 2013, hundreds of thousands of Americans scrambled to sign up for health coverage to meet the deadline for coverage to begin January 1st on the health exchanges. On the federal exchange, the White House announced a million Americans had successfully signed up for coverage by Christmas week and that the heavy volume would continue. On the state exchanges, business was also brisk. California topped the list in the nation with over 400,000 enrollees now signed up for insurance through Covered California. More than 35,000 folks did so in Colorado, approaching 200,000 in New York. Some states extended deadlines for coverage to begin January 1st because of the problems with the online exchanges. And he may have been vacationing in Hawaii, and he already has pretty darn good coverage, but President Obama signed up for Obamacare while on vacation, doing so symbolically to show how well the system seems to be working now. Meanwhile, in Ohio, the state Supreme Court upheld the governor's expansion of Medicaid in that state to include an additional 275,000 low-income folks. The measure was being challenged by several GOP lawmakers and right-to-life groups. $100 million, that's the size of the settlement a Massachusetts pharmacy has agreed to pay for deadly pain medications that were tainted with a meningitis-causing fungus. 
The settlement will go to victims and their families. And the winner of the 2013 Vertebrate of the Year, according to Science Magazine, it's the naked mole rat. Chosen for its longevity, the buck-toothed hairless rodent has an estimated lifespan of 30 years, nine times that of the typical mouse. The naked mole rat has been lauded for its natural resistance to cancer, A pair of studies looked at their unique properties and found a higher concentration of a compound called hyaluronan. When this substance was removed, they lost their tumor resistance. The naked mole rat, not much of a looker, but rife with potential for cancer researchers. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Harvey Feinberg, president of the Institute of Medicine, the health branch of the National Academy of Sciences, an independent nonprofit organization that works to provide unbiased and authoritative advice to decision makers and the public on matters of public health. Dr. Feinberg served as the provost at Harvard University from 1997 to 2001, following 13 years as dean of the Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Feinberg co-founded and served as president of the Society for Medical Decision-Making and as an author of several books, including Clinical Decision Analysis in Innovators in Physician Education. Dr. Feinberg earned his MD and PhD at Harvard and is a recipient of several honorary degrees in numerous awards, including the Frank A. Calderon Prize, which is the highest prize in public health, and is the 2013 Friesen International Prize of Health Research. Dr. Feinberg, thanks so much for joining us on Conversations in Healthcare. My pleasure to be with you. You know, the Institute of Medicine, which really just makes such a difference in people's lives, really requires a an interesting orchestration. You you oversee the efforts of uh, nine boards and 15 standing forums and roundtables, managing some 3,000 volunteers, all engaged in IOM's quest to improve public health in this country. And for the benefit of our listeners who may not be that familiar with the work being done at the Institute, could you give us some insight into the work you're tasked with at IOM and highlights of what you think some of the most important areas of research are? I'd be happy to, Mark. The Institute of Medicine is the nation's advisor to improve health. We are the health arm of the National Academy of Sciences, an independent non-government organization dedicated to improving decision-making and helping policymakers, professionals, and the public uh, come to better choices about health. The scope of our work is as wide as the nation's health agenda, We work on the needs of disadvantaged populations, on children, on elderly, uh, for our veterans and military populations. We work on the problems of prevention of disease and population health. We're deeply immersed in the challenges of health care and improving the practice of uh, medical care. And we have uh, groups working on uh, health science and policy as it relates to all manner of activities that bear on health, whether it's nutrition or uh, environment or other ways in which we can improve our health. So the writ of the Institute of Medicine is quite broad. It's domestic. It's also global. 
Uh, but all of it is focused on the goal of improving health. Well, Dr. Feinberg, I am so glad we have this opportunity to make the public aware of the Institute of Medicine. As a devoted reader of your many reports that are issued, you provide just an enormous service to the country. You realize that maybe there's been no time in the history of healthcare in our country where the potential, at least for transformation, is so great. And you've said that to achieve greater public health, we have to align the incentives for all the stakeholders, the providers and the the policymakers, and the public. So in this moment uh, in time, as the Affordable Care Act uh, moves very close to that implementation, you're someone who scrutinized the creation and the implementation of public health policies for the better part of your career. Share with us and our listeners, what's your take on the Affordable Care Act and its potential for this transformation? The Affordable Care Act is one step along a long trajectory in the United States about increasing access to health care. Literally, this goes back uh, to before the Great Depression in the 1930s and the early discussions about uh, widening access to health insurance. There were proposals that President Roosevelt made, President Truman, President Kennedy, President Nixon, President Reagan, all put forward various proposals related uh, to health. Uh, Of course, we know about the Clinton efforts in the 1990s, which did not result in legislation. And President Obama and the administration did succeed in putting forward and having enacted uh, our current extension of insurance through the Affordable Care Act. It's experiencing its growing pains in the early phase of implementation, but from a healthcare point of view, its core contribution is that it does increase access to services for millions of Americans who otherwise uh, lack insurance, and and that is a positive thing. Uh, It also has provisions that strengthen the preventive services in our country, including, for example, Uh, mandating that certain preventive care uh, be available without copayment. So it's a step forward. It will continue to be politically controversial. And I believe that we will continue to see in our country uh, efforts to intensify and expand availability of health care to everyone in the country. Uh, Dr. Feinberg, you focus much of your work on prevention, which you see as critical to creating a high-functioning healthcare system and, and a healthy society. However, you've noted in the past that there are seven deadly sins that impact public health uh, every day that you think pose a real challenge to those tasked with creating sustainable public health policies. And tell our listeners what they are and what you see the solutions to be. It's inspired, obviously, by the original seven deadly sins that were first enunciated by Pope Gregory I back in the 6th century. You <laughs> That's know, Haven't he, changed much. <laughs> it, well, you know, lust, uh, sloth, right. gluttony, <laughs> greed, <laughs> wrath, right. envy, and pride, you know, the seventh deadly sin. So, yes, uh, yes they're all still with us. Uh, for public health, I adopted some of them. I said, well, you know, sloth blocks us from doing the things every day that would keep us healthy. Uh, gluttony cajoles us into uh, eating more even when we're not hungry mm-hmm. and a contributor to the obesity problem. Uh, greed is certainly a driver in some corporate mm-hmm. settings to market and profit from things that are bad for health, such as cigarettes. So I adopted additional sins. I said, well, ignorance is an important deadly sin for public health. It always colors judgment and leads to poor decision-making. Complacency. 
uh, I thought was responsible for so much of accepting as normal things that we really should be struggling to prevent or that are avoidable. And then timidity, uh, which prevents us from demanding those changes in policy and practice that would actually improve our health. Now, for the seventh deadly sin of public health, I chose obstinacy, which is the refusal to accept evidence on what would actually be best for our own health. Interestingly, I did a little exercise with the community here at the Institute of Medicine, our staff, and I asked them, what would they choose as the seventh deadly sin of public health if they had a choice? And we got some very interesting answers. For example, arrogance, hypocrisy, denial, procrastination, and selfishness. Hmm. And then someone suggested the deadly sin of silence. And I thought these were really quite suggestive. I might add that we decided to do a little exercise on what would be the seven living virtues of public health that could counteract these deadly sins. I started out with suggesting moderation, Mm -hmm. prevention, preparedness, science, service. And then I asked our staff, what would they suggest as the seventh living virtue? And they came up with collaboration, selflessness, leadership, honesty, partnership, altruism. And someone said, if only we could adopt the golden rule. So I thought the exercise was quite revealing and taught me that there are actually more than seven deadly sins and seven living virtues of public health. Uh, so, Dr. Feinberg, the uh, Institute of Medicine, we, we noted a few months ago, has produced so many uh, seminal reports on so many areas within healthcare from the obesity epidemic, HIV, AIDS, vaccinations, violence. You talked about disparities. But your most downloaded report, as I understand it, in the history of issuing these reports, is the report published in 2010 on the future of nursing. And the team that led that just unveiled a follow-up to that report. Take us to that future of nursing. What were the recommendations aimed at transforming nurse education and training, uh, some of the actions that have been taken since then to move us forward, and also some of the reactions within the healthcare community. The study that the Institute of Medicine released three years ago, led by uh, Donna Shalala, former Secretary of Health and Human Services, was sponsored by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And the foundation had really made a decision to also help follow up in making sure that the core ideas of the recommendations would have a chance to be fully implemented. The key recommendation was to enable nurses to practice up to the full extent of their training and ability. Many states still had on the books limitations that restricted the ability of nurses to contribute in the ways that they should in uh, primary care settings, for example, in nurse practitioner roles in a variety of settings. By now, every state and the District of Columbia established what we call action collaborations that are intended to help foster the adoption of changes in regulation and rule and to establish the principles for nursing practice. And in the ensuing several years, at least seven states have actually modified their rules and regulations that give wider latitude of practice for nursing. 
this report, uh, three years after its release, continues to be actively downloaded from the Institute of Medicine website. In this case, uh, my impression is that nursing schools all over the country are putting this on their reading lists for students, and that probably is contributing to the continuing interest in the report. But what's more gratifying than the readers of the report is the actions that have adopted the recommendations. We're speaking today with Dr. Harvey Feinberg, president of the Institute of Medicine. Dr. Feinberg has served as provost of Harvard University and dean of the Harvard School of Public Health. uh, Dr. Feinberg, one of your specific areas of study over the years has been in decision-making, specifically clinical decision-making. And let's look at the decision-making on the policy side for a moment. And lately, Washington has been pretty indecisive. And what might politicians learn from your work in clinical decision-making that might help them make more decisive policies aimed at improving the public health of Americans? You know, Mark, one of the things that you learn as you study decision-making, that failing to decide is also a decision. A big difference, of course, is that in the case of an individual in clinical decision-making, the choice is about that one person, whereas policymakers are choosing and deciding for a nation or mm-hmm. for a state or for the whole body politic. One of the key features of all these decisions is that there's uncertainty about the future. And a second feature of all decisions is that they take account of our values and preferences. In the case of an individual in a clinical setting, it's the patient's values and preferences. In a body politic, in a legislature, you've got many values and contending preferences that are obviously working sometimes jointly, but often against one another. So the key, I think, for policymaking is really the notion of compromise. It's not that everyone in the end has to agree. Rather, everyone has to be willing to participate in the give and take that results in an agreement where each side gets part of what they want and gives up part to the other side so they get what they want. Dr. Feinberg, I think uh, we look at you certainly as such a longtime educator and also one of our national leaders in healthcare uh, and somebody who therefore has a particular interest in the education and training of healthcare professionals. We see an enormous amount of change starting to happen. I wonder if you'd share maybe your vision for this recalibration of the education and training of healthcare professionals as we move into the future. Well, health education is fundamental if we're going to have the future workforce to meet the health needs. And that's a workforce that is across the whole spectrum of preparation in physician training and nursing training and public health training and pharmacy training and so on. There was a very interesting uh, report of the Lancet Commission about three years ago on the future health workforce that Mm -hmm. emphasized the idea of learning across the disciplines Mm -hmm. and team-based learning. And when you couple that with reports uh, like our recent nursing report, uh, I think you can uh, identify certain key principles that are going to be very, very important uh, going into the future for education. As any practitioner begins their career, the knowledge base that they have is going to be turning over multiple times if they're going to remain current. Mm -hmm. And so the capacity for continuous learning has to be built into learning from the beginning. The idea of teamwork that I mentioned is a second aspect that is not always realized in practice. We know that patients with chronic disease particularly require team-based care to have optimal management of their conditions. Learning together across the professions 
is a really good way to help reinforce the kind of practicing teamwork that is needed and is important preparation. A third really important challenge, I think, for the future is going to be the combination of information technology and maintaining the personal touch, contact, and relationship that uh, healing requires. So practitioners of the future are going to have to be adept simultaneously with a more technological world, a world immersed in big data and information, and at the same time, uh, retain the capacity to establish, promote, and strengthen those personal relationships that are the heart of clinical care and healing. Fourth, I think it's going to be very important for everyone to keep patients centered as the heart of our focus and attention. Some of us like to talk about person-centered care because it's more than just the moment when an individual is a patient. It's about their needs at every stage in relation to their health and how does the health system, the public health system, serve to reinforce positive aspects of health and to deal with problems in a more efficient and effective way. So all of these things, I think, are going to be core features of future health education. And on top of all this, we are going to have to find ways to make education like everything else ever more efficient and cost-effective mm -hmm. if we're going to have a sustainable system. So that means examining the time required, the division of educational levels at undergraduate, at clinical and preclinical training, and all of it needs attention, and all of it will help us shape a health education system that will prepare the clinician leaders for delivery of better care in the future. Uh, we've seen this growth in mobile health and genomics and computers like Watson sort of being programmed to assist clinicians in healthcare. You talked about big data, and I think you, we want to get from big data to uh, big wisdom as well. And you recently gave a very popular TED Talk about the era of neo-evolution we're entering. So in many ways, the future is here, but you're also concerned at the Institute of Medicine with ensuring that these technologies are studied for the potential to do harm as, as well as to do good. So uh, how do we accelerate the pace of research in these areas? And uh, talk to us about how we bring about this power to healthcare and while we're still protecting the population. There's so many dimensions of this when it comes to the data explosion that we're facing uh, that can be a force for good. We need to always keep in mind that data is not the same as information. Information is not knowledge, and knowledge is not itself wisdom to choose. So I think we need to be able to apply that data, but in an interpreted way, to give us the knowledge base and ultimately the most sensible choices for the benefit of people. I think a really critical part of uh, finding our way through this challenging future is going to be actively engaged patients. The power of patients to take more control of their own lives, to have more mastery of available knowledge, to be more actively engaged in the management of their own conditions, to be more active as partners with their clinical uh, providers, to be able to give a voice to their preferences and, and their own uh, values at every stage of life and illness, including uh, at the end of life. These are all going to be, I think, uh, a very important touchstone to how we can cope with all of the uh, many pressures that you describe. 
When it comes to specifically this problem of the long delay between discovery and uh, and availability of, of new technologies that would potentially extend life and improve the quality of life, uh, we do have, I think, a very serious policy and technological task ahead of ourselves. Uh, we do need to find ways to continue to, to reinforce invention, uh, entrepreneurship, uh, to uh, harmonize regulations and make it possible for innovators to produce their uh, new ideas and convert those into uh, technologies that will benefit patients and do this while we are still protecting uh, the public and uh, patients against uh, adverse reactions as far as we can and even dangerous uh, technologies and substances. So this can only be accomplished if we develop and uh, and optimize regulatory science as well as uh, as basic and and clinical science. We need to focus on translation, uh, which uh, to NIH's credit has been a major theme through the clinical and uh, translational science activities that it has supported in in recent years. And from a policy point of view, we we need to find ways to uh, provide a better uh, incentives for uh, investors and entrepreneurs in this critical period when the technology is promising but not yet a product so mm -hmm. that uh, it's advantageous to develop genuinely novel advances and not simply uh, work on the me-too substances that make only marginal improvement. We've been speaking today with Dr. Harvey Feinberg, president of the Institute of Medicine and former provost and dean of the School of Public Health at Harvard University. You can learn more about his work by going to iom.edu or by following the Institute of Medicine on Facebook or Twitter. Dr. Feinberg, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. It's been my pleasure to talk with you. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, we've seen both sides in this debate over Obamacare distorting the facts about premiums. We caution our readers to be wary of claims about big premium rate decreases or increases, and it's important to ask, compared with what, when politicians make such claims? For instance, days before the health care exchanges launched on October 1st, President Obama said that average premiums for the Illinois exchange were 25% lower than what individuals were able to get previously buying insurance on their own. But Illinois officials used that figure in comparing exchange rates with what the federal government had predicted premiums would be. It wasn't a comparison with individual market pricing. Obama made a similar comparison with California, saying that exchange premiums in that state were about 33% lower. But California officials said premiums were up to 29% lower compared with rates for small employer plans, not individual market plans. Officials said they gave that comparison because both markets wouldn't deny applicants based on pre-existing conditions. But the president didn't explain that. 
Obama also mentioned New York, and he was right in that comparison. The governor's office said exchange premiums were at least 50% lower on average than 2013 individual market rates. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Fast food is fast becoming a numbers game. While McDonald's is the largest chain to do so, more and more fast food restaurants are posting their calorie counts for menu items, and that trend is going to continue. A recent study shows that some 35% of fast food consumers never bother looking at the calorie count, even when it's provided. But another study showed that of the 33% who do read them, Many lean towards healthier or at least lower-calorie options much of the time. And over time, that awareness of calorie counts actually impacts a lasting shift in consumer behavior. Now, there's a little-known measure in the Affordable Care Act that will be expanding upon that theme. Starting in 2014, vending machines are required to post the calorie counts of all the items being sold, something that has the vending machine suppliers up in arms. With over 5 million vending machines now being required to be adapted across the country, it will cost the vending machine industry millions to make the transition. The machines will have to be modified to adapt to all new food items being placed inside week after week. But government officials say that if this move can help the average consumer save just 100 calories a week, the long-term savings in health care costs could be significant over time. The Food and Drug Administration is releasing its final rules early in the year, and the calorie counts of things like that bag of potato chips, Chips Ahoy, or M&M's, the typical vending machine fare, will be posted right by the selection number for each item. Using ubiquitous food dispensing systems to educate consumers about the calorie count of their food choices, allowing them to make a more conscious and hopefully more healthful food choice, now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.